welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JT McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Kevin Hoser. How are you this week, Kevin? I'm doing just fine, which is exactly how I feel about this story. It's a very <laughs> normal week for me, and this has been a very normal story. Yeah, that probably feels like a fair assessment. So, just so everybody's clear on this, this week we are covering The Church and the Crown. That would be a Fifth Doctor, Perry and Eremam story, where they get to travel back and encounter some musketeers. And, you know, that's kind of an offhanded sort of way of introducing the story, but that's that's basically what happens over all four episodes. That's that's more or less what this play consists of. But, um, yeah, how did you find it? I found it fine. I think it's very fun, and it's very light on its feet. It reminds me a lot of The Romans, which is like a classic TV story. I don't want to imply it's as good as The Romans, but it has that same sort of atmosphere of the Doctor is thrown through this historical situation. Uh, the real-life figures are larger than life here, and it's just a bunch of sort of very sort of fun, very sort of lightly dramatic set pieces. Nothing too serious, nothing too despairing, and a lot of humor to be found in it. Not really out-and-out jokes, which I guess the Romans had more of, like out-and-out jokes. This is more just sort of charm, just sort of very laid-back, just having fun with it, which it's, it's much nicer to get this over something than the rapture. <laughs> oh, yes, no question about that. But, yeah, no, I, I, I basically agree. I, I think this is fine. And I, it's it's nothing spectacular, but it is uh, straightforward, good story. And, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with the kind of comparison with the Romans as well. This is definitely... A sort of historical in the vein of, of Dennis Spooner more than sort of John Lucarati and, and the Aztecs and, and kind of the more sort of serious thing. This is much lighter. It's got a, a fleetness of foot about it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just one of those stories that it, it's very easy to listen to. It's, it's, it's not the most demanding story in the world, but that's fine. That's obviously not what it's trying to do. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I always try and avoid this word, but I, I think there's really no way of escaping the R word this time out. It's a romp. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, that's the best way you can describe it. I mean, like I said, everything is bigger and larger than life. Everything is very sort of just very surface-focused and very in-the-moment-focused. And there's not any larger themes. There's no gimmick as there would be to a more complex story. It's just a very sort of straightforward adventure. Very much like the sort of Three Musketeers, it's sort of aping and sort of historically refuting. But, you know, it just in that same mold of adventure story, which I find pretty fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the fact that there's nothing serious sort of going on here doesn't really undermine the story. And, the, you know, there are occasional moments where it, it tries to go for something a little bit darker. So, you know, you have the Doctor's torture and stuff like that. But even then, it's not really... Uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't land any kind of big dramatic beats through that. And, you know, at one point, even the Doctor admits that he's he's basically just enjoyed the last four episodes, which which is fine. And, um, you know, it gets a nice performance out of everyone. And I do like the fact that um, it's, a, it's a, one of those lighter historicals which is able to derive its humour from situations rather than from trying to land gags all the time. And I, I greatly appreciate that, although it's not a pure historical. We've, we've, we've sort of mentioned before things like um, Shakespeare Code, which, you know, keeps trying to land these funny gags and not, not very successfully. But this is a story where the humour is allowed to kind of grow out of the situation. So, you know, a lot of it is very absurdist. And there must be something weird about historicals that it, it seems to lend themselves to, to sort of 
you know, double plots. So, you know, we've had uh, Black Orchid with two Nissas, or we've had the massacre with two people who look like the Doctor. Here we have it again with Perry looking like Queen Anne. I don't know what it is about historicals that lends itself to that kind of sort of uh, storytelling, but there must be something behind it. But um, yeah, well, what did you think of the doubles plot? I think it's nice to hear Nicola Bryant not have to put on an American accent. <laughs> she's, but yeah, she's very good. And part of that is the accent, but very unrecognizable as Queen Anne. I have, have to really concentrate to hear the similarities, which is like, it's good. It means the characters sound similar, but different enough. And it creates this very nice sort of uncanny effect. And she's such a good performance as Anne. Like, a lot of the characters, she's very sort of simply drawn. But, like, she hits the big, like, tantrum notes and scorn notes and uh, sort of dry wit notes very well. And, yeah, it's a very fun presence in a a story with a lot of characters competing to try to have the most fun presence. (laughs) Yeah, the one thing that Church and the Crown is not lacking for is is characters. There are a lot of characters going on here, but... No, I, I, I'll praise Nicola Bryan. It is lovely, I agree, to hear her sort of acting with her, her sort of normal accent. And, and, you know, okay, her and Perry don't really share that much kind of time in the same scenes together. But even then, it's sort of, it's effectively done and it's well edited enough that you, you kind of buy it and we don't have to have kind of, you know, the sort of somebody in a dodgy wig or something that we've, that we've maybe perhaps encountered when we've had these plots on television. But it's nice that she gets the chance to, yes, have this kind of, different range to her and you know i mean there's a lot of characters who spend a lot of time in this place sort of they're not running up and down corridors but they're kind of doing the historical equivalent of it and it's nice that that nicole bryant gets a sort of a moment of stillness in that from from doing the queen anne side of the character so that she actually has this performance where where she's allowed to sort of breathe the character a little bit more than sort of Perry and Aramem and the Doctor kind of running around and then just missing each other and then just catching up with each other again and so on and so on. And, and yeah, so she has this nice little moment of sort of stillness and all the kind of farce which is going on around her. And, and yeah, she absolutely rises to the challenge of it, I think. I think it's good that Nicola O'Brien does have Queen Anne to play because Perry is definitely sort of taking a backseat this story. This is not the much more fun Perry we've seen recently in Eye of the Scorpion or Ish. I mean, it is the same Perry character-wise, but not as much to do. So, yeah, like I said, she basically captures, escapes, then goes back for the Doctor, and then gets in a lot of that sort of sarcastic wit she's developed in her big finish in there, but doesn't really have much of an impact story-wise. Certainly not a lot of more dramatic moments rest on her. I would say Aramem takes a nice spotlight this story, but... I mean, it's, it's a serviceable role for Perry. She's fine in the story. But it's nice to have Anne there so Bryant has something more meaty to do. <laughs> and, she yeah, she does a great job in those interactions with Lewis and Richelieu and all the other major players. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things which is, is nice that is that RMM does get that sort of space to do something a little bit sort of more expansive. And something which is just, it feels a little bit unusual for a Doctor Who companion to kind of fall into that that kind of role where she's she's playing this kind of foreign princess in france or whatever and i suppose technically you could say that barbara did something similar in the aztecs but i mean not really and and certainly there's a there's a sense of fun about it that just you know the aztecs doesn't roll with at all because that's not what the aztecs is about but you know rmm really gets to kind of go for it here if i have any kind of 
slight regret there. It's it's kind of a shame that RMM and Perry don't get to spend a little bit more time together. But it's also fine because it gives RMM the chance to kind of explore what is to her a very kind of alien environment. And she sort of gets it, but she also doesn't quite get it as well. And I think those little notes are handled quite nicely. The way that she, she kind of understands how a court works, but she doesn't... She doesn't quite get all the details. The minutiae is slightly outside of her realm of experience. I think all that kind of stuff handles her character sort of very well and, and quite subtly as well. It's not just some big crass kind of breach of etiquette thing. She does more or less understand what's going on here, but she just, she just yeah, she doesn't have the experience to understand precisely how everything will work. I think that's very nice characterization for her. Yeah, I think uh, Perry and Aaron get a lot of sort of, what they don't do together at the very end is a lot of very sort of cute moments where, they talk about sort of their like the titles they have as princess and queen and a lot of little light moments between them, which really makes the relationship like all, feel all the more solid. And that's so important with the Perry and Mem stories, which uh, spoiler alert, listeners, we won't be covering much of because many of them are very bad. <laughs> but uh, one good thing about those stories consistently is their relationship. So it's good to see that get more grounding here. On Aramem being a princess, I think it does something really unique where. There are few and far between, but there are companions who are intellectually equals with the Doctor. Uh, Vicky, Zoe, Romana, of course, and others here and there. But we really get to see a character who gets put on the same sort of social standing as the Doctor whenever they're put in these sort of situations. So usually it's the Doctor coming in very unannounced, introducing himself to the Doctor and his assistant so-and-so. And they sort of sell him the rules which makes sense because that's the role they sort of follow generally in the TARDIS. But here, Aramem is the leading here. She's the princess, and the doctor is her vizier, or advisor, however they phrase it. And that shakes things up in a very fun way. Aramem is now the one taking point in the sort of... I guess you would almost call it a con, (laughs) you could say, when the doctor comes in and assumes this sort of courtly identity in these sort of historical stories. But yeah... It's very nice to see the companion sort of be the one with the more dignified position and the one doing the more heavy lifting, interacting with the royalty and major historical figures here. And the doctor sort of being forced to take a back seat by sort of the nature of the position he's assumed. And of course he doesn't completely. He's still barging the rooms, demanding Louis do this or that, or there's great danger upon the kingdom, that sort of thing. But yeah, Aaron spends a lot of time with Anne and a lot of time with Louis and it gives her some very interesting interactions from her and really develops the character in fascinating ways. Well, I think it's a very good point about kind of the social standing. And it also gives Peter Davison the opportunity to do kind of a slightly more comedic take on his Doctor, which he doesn't generally tend to get much of an opportunity to do. He's he's a good comic actor, but he's not often put in the position where he has the opportunity to explore that. You know, like when we were talking about spare parts or whatever, he can get hysterical and he has his own way of dealing with anger or righteous fury or all those things, but there's very little scope for him to do this kind of sort of comedy side to his Doctor, and he does it very well with a slightly... It's not exactly resigned sort of approach to it, but he he kind of does also understand that, you know, Aramem has got the lead here and he kind of needs to sort of slightly fall into line in order for all of this kind of bluffing stuff to work which as you 
quite rightly say is normally the companion's role and you know he's 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 not he's not quite muttering things through gritted teeth but it's kind of you know there's a lot of sort of under the breath kind of talking going on and you know at one point he sort of very grimly declares that he will explain something later and it's it's landed as a comedy line rather than an excuse to avoid exposition and it's there's nice little moments like that where he's able to be given the opportunity to do something with his performance that he doesn't often get to do and i think i think it's that lightness of touch that really makes the play come alive not just for the doctor but for most of the characters they do have this kind of very light touch to them and you know okay that that does mean that this story is is jolly japes and and not necessarily an awful lot more but when it's being done as well as this it's kind of difficult to object to it really i think i made it uh, clear in here to your chagrin that davison is not my doctor but i think he would be uh, a lot more likable i think in my opinion that if he did more comedy stuff like this because he is so good at it He's so fun at being light and silly and doing this more sort of fun adventuring kind of mode. And yeah, it is very, like, I love the sort of line that sort of sums up his role in the play very well when it was like, do you ever knock? Or something like that. Do you always come in without knocking when he's bursting into the ball for what is like the fourth time in the play? And I mean, yeah, he's, even when he started playing it straight, it's always a bit more lighter in this play and a little bit more funnier. His doctor does very well in that role. And I agree there's not really any big dramatic moments for him in this play. I couldn't pick a really good stand-out uh, monologue or anything from him. But just in general, he seems to be having a lot of fun and being very impassioned about the material, which is good. Well, yeah, I'm, we've had plenty of opportunities for him to, to kind of do that sort of dramatic underscoring in, in the last few plays of uh, The Fifth Doctor that we've covered. So, I mean, of course, I mentioned Spare Parts, and that's the big one. But, you know, it's the same in Primeval as well. You know, he had all these kind of serious moments with Nyssa and all these sort of gentle character beats and all, all this kind of stuff. But but it was a much more kind of serious role, whereas this does give him that that space. And, and it's something that he, he takes advantage of. And one other thing I, I definitely want to say, which is in the, in, very much in the Church and the Crown's favour, is that I really do appreciate the fact that it is... A straight historical because I think this is a play especially maybe around the middle of episode three it would be really really easy for there to suddenly be like a timey-wimey thing going on or stumpy stumpy bad guys turn up or something where you go oh my god here's the big dramatic twist that's you know because because there is one moment I think it's in episode three where they do have this speech about um changing history and and the doctor sort of tries to claim that he's always been part of the events which unfold here and 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 Perry doesn't quite understand it and it's not that moment isn't the strongest moment of the play but the fact that they raise it um, and then things just go back to being a normal his, a normal historical is, is quite nice. Yeah, I think this would be a very easy play to have sort of tipped over into sort of, you know, last minute rushed episode four sci-fi explanations for everything. But we don't get that. We just get the play allowed to sort of finish in, in the mode that it started. And I really appreciate that they didn't go for the, the kind of obvious way out there. And that, that means that the Doctor's performance, this lighter performance, carries all the way through all four episodes. And, and that's great. It's just so great that he gets the opportunity to be able to, to to kind of land that performance the whole way through rather than having to kind of do a dog leg and and suddenly pretend everything is going to be terribly exciting and dramatic when when that's very clearly not what the play is trying to do uh, i'm gonna put a pin in this before i forget that conversation in the sewer is crap in my opinion <laughs> which is unfortunate because it's such an easy out for them but i'll get back to that because i want to address your sort of bigger point which is yeah uh it would have been so easy for the Duke of Buckingham, to suddenly reveal, like, episode three or even episode two, 
and my troops are the Cybermen, <laughs> or something equally ridiculous. But no, it's just allowed to breathe on its own and be its sort of own thing without complicating it with more aliens. And it's for the better, because it's such a light story. And I like that it's so light. It's <laughs> been a while since we had a story where everything clocked in under a half hour, and one of the episodes is even, like, 20 minutes, I think, or 21, something like that. And it's so, like, just refreshing <laughs> to see it playing around with length more. Like, you have a 20-minute episode following a 30-minute episode, and then the other two fall somewhere in between, which is not something I think Big Finish does sort of often enough. It often is like sort of the Netflix model where, okay, we have more freedom to make things longer, so we're going to make everything longer rather than actually giving the stories the sort of length they need to be to be coherent episodes and just leaving them like that. Kevin Scott and Mark Wright, as writers, do know how to pace this very well, and whereas a natural break for an episode, they take it no matter how short or long into the episode it is, and it gives a story a very nice pace. I mean, it wouldn't be so nice if they were doing this to extremes, 15 minutes and 40 minutes, but keeping in that 20 to 30 range and then just not padding or quickening anything, it keeps the story moving very well, and it never feels like a dull moment. And so I really appreciate that about this. Oh, I completely agree. I think that sort of willingness to start playing around with that kind of basic sort of structure of episodes is something that it's sort of... It feels weird to say that it's innovative for Doctor Who, but it is because I'm prior to Doctor Who being an audio format, everything was absolutely rigidly sort of 25 minutes, except for one season, which was was 45 minutes when we're talking about the original show. And that that format does mean that regardless of how much material you have for your episodes, that's that's it. You have to have enough material to fill that, whether your your plot or your characters or your story justifies it. And yeah, I mean, especially with sort of you mentioning the, the, the kind of the Netflix thing, you know, that's always the problem with the Netflix uh, Marvel shows. You have enough material for 10 episodes, but every season is 13 episodes long. So everything feels kind of stretched out. And yeah, I, I really, I, yeah, I just basically agree with you. I think it's, it's great that episodes are the length that they need to be for the amount of material that needs to be covered. That seems like such a, a foundational kind of thing to get right, but we know that that's not always the case. And so, yeah, to hear, to, I mean, it just, it feels the time passes so easily when you listen to this. And that's partly because it is kind of a lighthearted story, but it's also, yeah, as you say, it's just because it's it's paced right. And and Kevin Scott and Mark Wright, they, they're, they're, I don't want to say, this is, oh, this is going to sound much more pejorative than I mean it to, but they're kind of, this is the, the Bob Baker and Dave Martin of Big Finish. They, 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 they have a writing partnership and they've written dozens of things together. They've done a whole bunch of stuff for the Blake Seven range, which, you know, as I've mentioned before, is, is kind of one of my favorites and and they, they seem to have this kind of thing done quite well most of their big their uh, black seven stuff is is really good as well and they're, they're good at being able to nail that pacing and it's getting those kind of yeah those fundamental kind of elements of the play right so that you can then put this kind of light-hearted romp or whatever on top of it that 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 helps it to work it is true i think with a story like this and again, this is going to sound more pejorative than I really mean it to, but there is a sort of built-in inconsequentiality to it. Nobody's ever going to take this as a big, serious play. And that's that's absolutely fine. But but just by doing simple things like getting episode length right, by having the right amount of material, you know, they're able to kind of land these kind of stories when, when other stories that we... I mean, 
really not a lot of distance between this and say something like Winter for the Adept, but this is just so much more competently put together. And things like being able to get those kind of basics right, that's that's what makes this work when, when other players which are operating in a similar mode kind of really fail. I was looking at their credits. I did not realize it before, but now I know why the names are familiar. They're the people behind the Forge stories, which are... I mean, which is very interesting because this is such a fun and light story, and the Forge stories are Doctor Who, and it's most, like, uh, dark and gritty, almost. But, I mean, yeah, those stories do such a good job playing around with structure as well, which is why I have sort of a fondness for them in sort of a weird way. They're not great, but I have a fondness for them. And, yeah, this has a sort of same, too, where it's not really playing with structure, but it knows structure well yeah, and it can hit those beats very well exactly that's that's exactly the right way of saying it i think it knows structure i'm not i admire the forge stories more than i like them i, I can't honestly claim to be big <laughs> yeah. fans of them but i i definitely appreciate what they're trying to do and there's definitely space for those kind of stories within doctor who so i i'm i'm very happy to have those stories there even whilst acknowledging that they're they're certainly not my favorite but i mean if you look down the list of um stuff that they've they've written i mean it's a huge list and um you you know, I say most of them are pretty good. There's, there's, there's no. Um, okay, the name Peladon turns up there once, and that's really unfortunate because I really, really, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Peladon stories. But uh, you know, other than that, there's, there's, there's some good stuff there. And yeah, just being able to, just being able to get those kind of basics right, and and being able to put those things together, it, it, it makes all the difference in the world. So if you're going to be able to do a story like this, you have to, you just have to be able to get those things. Right, and and it there is, a, well, let me say it this way. I I mentioned earlier that there was a lot of kind of running up and down. It's not corridors, but streets and sewers and back and forth and all the rest of it. And I mean that's about as far from a kind of innovative structure that you could possibly have. That's the most bog standard kind of approach to Doctor Who you can have. Um, but there is a sort of. I, I don't know, they kind of get away with it. There's a sort of slightly breathless enthusiasm to it, as if running up and down dirty Parisian streets instead of running up and down dirty corridors and BBC television centre somehow makes all the difference, but it somehow kind of does. And they, they kind of, even that element, even like the most sort of traditional Doctor Who elements, kind of just work here. And I, I, We were talking about sort of, um, you know, the fact that there's no big reveal of the Cybermen or whatever. And, you know, there's like, there's a, a, at least four or five moments uh in, in this play with with uh richelieu and with uh Ruffel and just a, a whole bunch of cameras i was just waiting for like anthony inley to be revealed with a big ha 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 moment you know and, but and and again there's it's just playing around with the classics there's no there's, there's nothing really innovative there but by by sort of slightly swerving one way than, rather than the other or by just having such enthusiasm for what it is that they're doing it just all works. Not only is it the running up the streets, but it also has the most bog standard, in my opinion, and least favorite Doctor Who trope of the prison uh, capture and escape, <laughs> which appears in like, oh God, it has to be at least like 30% of Doctor Who stories is some ridiculously high number for one trope to show up in. But yeah, it's fine here. And I think it's because there's a light touch to it. I'm never asked to take it seriously, which is important because I'm not going to take it seriously when you're playing with such a tried and worn territory. But what works is that, if I put sort of a button on it, is that, yeah, throughout the whole time, it's not really focused on the sort of tropes themselves, but focused on, on how we can liven them up. So instead of commiserating in um, Perry sort of being locked up, 
There's a lot more scenes with the musketeers having fun banter. And when we do get to Perry, it's advancing the story because the Duke is monologuing to her about his plan. Or monologuing to the Doctor when he's captured about his plan. And it's getting more bits and pieces of what he's doing, and so it's actually advancing the story and not stalling the story. And I think that's sort of, going back to how it's well-paced, as it sums up, the story's always moving. I mean, there's very little... If you're not getting new information about what's going on, you're getting more information about how the characters feel about it almost all the time. And because the story is so fleet, it can pack impact with like all these characters, it can sort of pack itself with information densely rather than spreading it out and stalling for time at any point, which is like very essential. You sort of need a story like this to move if you're not doing anything special with it. <laughs> it's sort of if you're not going to do if your ambition is not at the level of something like Jubilee or Doctor Who and the Pirates, then you need to be ephemeral. You can't have it like one way or the other. You have to have it one way or the other. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things about this play is that it does have a large cast. So that means that we never kind of linger on anybody long enough to kind of get fed up with them, if you know what I mean. Especially in this kind of story, you can't have like a small cast with, with long periods of time because it's going to unbalance the story. You need to have characters who are kind of coming in and out. And, and I sort of mentioned farce earlier, and this isn't, it's not really a farce as such, but it has aspects of that kind of farcical, uh, people just missing each other and, and, you know, all these kind of elements and all these sort of moving parts and, you know, and, and the fact that it's got, you know, a big cast of characters helps all those cogs to kind of work together. And, and yeah, so as the plot moves with that kind of speed and that kind of lightness, the characters are able to do the same. And, you know, and, I mean, most of the characters are sort of fairly straightforward archetypes, let's say. Um, and that's fine. So King Louis is, you know, kind of conceited and self-important and Cardinal Richelieu's a bit of a schemer and Duke of Buckingham's very full of himself and, and convinced of his kind of the rightness of his course of actions and fine. But that's fine. Those are broad sketches and there's just enough detail within those sketches to get an impression of the character without having to sort of linger on, on kind of flashbacks or, you know, big kind of dramatic character reveals or whatever. We have enough information. And of course, you know, I mean, anybody who's even vaguely familiar with the kind of you know the three musketeers or anything like that you know you're going to know who these people are it's not something which requires a great deal of explanation to you know to understand these characters who they are or what it is they're going to be doing so yeah i think that aspect of it works quite well but uh, how did you feel about the large cast because this is quite a large cast compared to certainly the last few plays we've covered but um yeah how did you feel they went down i mean like i said i think Having such a large cast means there's a lot of sort of information that can be very densely packed. Like you said, I mean, you don't get sick of anyone. I mean, every character has their own sort of charms. No one sticks out like a sore thumb as the um, as too unlikable. I mean, their villains are unlikable from a story perspective, but from a listener perspective, they're sort of just fun, affable sort of villains. Buckingham has sort of the appropriate amount of scenery chewing, uh, vileness to him. And there's Chevreau, who has, like, a very sharpness to her, and sort of a very sort of, like, almost sort of Parisian uh, 17th century gossip rag sort of quality <laughs> to her. Very soapy character. And so it's... Yeah, a lot of the characters are very soapy, in fact. So I guess it sort of helps it go down easier, is that is a sort of almost, like, reality show kind of intrigue. But I guess the uh, original version of that would just be pulp you would say it. Just this very sort of, yeah, low, low art, but sort of big emotion and big characters doing 
very sort of dramatic things like sleeping with each other off screen constantly and having big speeches and big emotions towards each other and constantly sniping at each other. And that sort of just, it's sort of a very fun atmosphere to sort of get into and sort of dissect all these different dynamics going on. A real Housewives of Paris, if you will. Oh yeah, that seems like a that seems like a fair comparison indeed. And I think I think one of the things that's interesting about it, especially when you say that it's kind of like soap opera, is I think of all the kind of eras of Doctor Who, I think sort of Peter Davison's era kind of lends itself to that kind of soap opera approach, kind of almost more than any, anything else. And I, I I fully admit that I'm I'm very influenced by um, Doctor Elizabeth Sandifer um, when I'm talking about this because she's written a whole bunch of stuff about the sort of way that soap opera functions within kind of Davison's era. So I, I fully hold my hands up that I'm being slightly sort of uh, plagiaristic or referential here. But the way that so many of Peter Davison's stories kind of run into each other and like at the, the uh, you know, after the big dramatic ending of Time Flight, we get a, a, a sorry, the big dramatic reveal of uh, Earthshock. We get a scene at the beginning of Time Flight that kind of picks up from that. And, you know, so many of his stories kind of just do this kind of bleeding into each other. And that's a very kind of soap opera structure. That's exactly the way that soap operas work. And, and, and so that this era kind of does lend itself to this and and we do get that in this play as well this is obviously the first kind of adventure or the first place that um Aramem has visited after she's uh, left Egypt in Eye of the Scorpion and so we have that same kind of bleeding of stories into each other and and that's fine it's it's a structure which works quite well and it's also a structure I think that the the, the new series embraces um very much so there's a lot of soap opera in the way that particularly Russell T Davis writes in in kind of Rose's era you know there's not that much difference between kind of the Powell estate and say Albert Square in EastEnders or something like that you know it's conspicuously working class it's conspicuously people in a certain kind of social and economic background and there is that sense that we have you know the mum who's doing her laundry or the boyfriend who's kind of drops in and out again like just like they do in soap operas or whatever and that that soap opera structure is definitely something I think that, that works very well with certain parts of the show. I don't think you could do it with all of them. I can't imagine it working well with, say, Sylvester McCoy. But with Davison, because we're sort of acclimatized to the idea that his stories function in that way, it means that a story like this is able to sort of use that sort of, yeah, that sort of soap opera structure to its advantage. And I think it really does do that. I think it lands that very, very well here. I guess we should talk about the characters specifically who we like and dislike. It doesn't sound like we dislike many, but the characters of Louis and Richelieu here, I don't know the musketeer sort of lore that well. I haven't even read the uh, famous Dumas novel, but I mean, I know the sort of basics, where it's usually Louis good for king and country, Richelieu evil, and the story does a good job sort of tipping its hand early, having the doctor sort of dismiss the book, and then sort of forging something a lot more complex. Neither is a very, you know, pleasant person. <laughs> They're both, especially Louis, is extremely cruel and awful, and Orishalo comes off looking better in the end. He's still nasty. He he really insults everyone around him. His designs, I guess you would say, on Anne are kind of leery, I guess. And you know, he sort of stokes the conflict before doing his best to try to put it out in the beginning. But um yeah, neither it's a very grey area we're working with them. And it's very interesting to see Doctor Who sort of delve into that and not sort of come forward these are the good guys, these are the bad guys when it comes to its guest cast here. Oh yeah, there's a very pleasing sense of kind of 
balance between these two characters. By the way, I have to say it amuses me greatly that the most recent adaptation of The Musketeer's Tale uh, on the BBC had Cardinal Richelieu played by one Peter Capaldi. So that's a very small little coincidence, but it, it, it pleases me great. And he, he chewed the scenery like nobody's business and it was glorious to watch. He, he really let himself go in that role. It was fabulous. But anyway, that's completely beside the point. Um, yeah, no, it, it's nice that there isn't that kind of... I mean, I guess the closest we get to a character who's just like a sort of straightforward bad guy is the Duke of Buckingham. And, and you know, he's been planning his invasion for months and he's got this kind of whole you know thing going on where he thinks this is going to bring him sort of the French throne and that's that's fine I mean he's not really a character that's meant to be taken all that seriously even though he's he's technically you know threatening you know the the king and all the rest of it but you know he's a fairly light character but yeah I I like the fact that we're not particularly meant to sympathize with either Richelieu um, or King Louis and it's just one of those things that we have to accept that there are kind of moral compromises on both sides um, but also that both sides do kind of sort of need each other as well and and you know the rich vain sort of pompous self-important king can make mistakes but can also make the right decisions and the scheming you know hissable villain that is cardinal richelieu is also capable of actually doing the right thing when when the moment comes that's that's it's it's not necessarily a great degree of complexity but it gives enough complexity to the characters that they feel like much more rounded characters than if it had just been you know, like the vain king that needs to be stopped or the, the the evil politician who's who's only out for himself and yeah that that's that's very much to the the benefit of the play and okay sure so the, the duke of buckingham is is, is a little one-dimensional but that's that's what he's there for he's there to give the other two characters the scope to have that kind of extra room to to be explored and and yeah that's that's something that that it's able to work fairly well and i mean for the rest of the characters they're they're sort of fairly functional i i think they're all fine the only one i have slight kind of um problem with even that's sort of saying it a little bit too hard but they're kind of the sort of the blind beggar who's who's blind but then he's lame and then it's kind of you know leprosy it's, it it feels kind of very sort of monty python um particularly sort of life of brian monty python and it's also it's a bit terry pratchett as well it's a bit kind of cut me on throat dibbler there's a lot of kind of it's just the one i don't know it's only a very minor character it's it's not you know terrible or anything but it just it feels derivative in a way that almost none of the other kind of characters feel derivative and that's that's a little bit of a shame but but other than that i think yeah all the other characters they 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 turn up and they they play the roles and they go away again and that's fine yeah, quote-unquote Blind Maurice is very much capital A, capital B, a bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and doesn't serve much more than that. But, uh, yeah, I have to agree, the Duke actually is very contemptible. I mean, in case there's any doubt, he spends his last scene just chewing apart Chevro, who was his only ally the whole play. <laughs> so that, he's just an awful person. But, yeah, he's he's a lot of fun to boo. Like, when you're not going to go after Richelieu, who's the obvious target, and we're not going to do, like, sort of a full table turn and go after Louis then you got to sort of find someone to sort of boo and hiss in a much lighter story like this. And so he fills the role nicely. And there's a bit of, from, I presume, English authors, a nice self-deprecation of how the English always ruin a party <laughs> there. That's a, pretty funny. As, as a Scotsman, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then there's the two musketeers who I could never tell apart in any scene. But uh, Delmar and Ruffet are their names. I got that much. And 
they're fine. Yeah, they turn up, they do the musketeer thing, and then they go away again, and 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 that's okay. Um, yeah, they're just they're just there to be that kind of ha ha yes da 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 da, and and yeah, sure, that's that's fine. That's exactly what they do. I guess to sort of bring the character conversation to a close and sort of come full circle on the podcast, bringing it sort of to a conclusion. Let's go back to Aramem again because I mean, this is sort of why we're covering it. Normally, we don't cover the sort of rank and file stories like this, but this is very important to sort of the Doctor relationship with Aramem and her relationship with the Big Finish series as a whole, and how the two sort of grow closer. Aramem, the Doctor, that is, and how he starts to see the value in keeping her around. And it's very important that she comes into her own like this, because otherwise we wouldn't have more Aramem stories. Well, yeah, and I think the fact that Aramem is given this space is 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 so important to, to the way that the character develops. And, you know, she's also given her own sense of agency. She's never really uh, a victim in this. She's never um, played as somebody who's... Um, left looking stupid because she doesn't understand what's going on as i said earlier quite the opposite she actually has a remarkable grasp of what's going on even if she doesn't get all the details and and she's given she's given a lot of space for caroline morris to really kind of yeah put a little bit of meat in the bone of the character and that's always it's always tough to do i think when you have your first story that's not your introductory story so yeah she does i mean i really like Caroline Morris in the role anyway and I agree obviously the reason that we're, we're covering this is because it's also going to be a while before we really hit another story with uh, Perry and Aramem as well um, so it's, it's good to kind of be able to sort of check in and, 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 and make sure that things kind of go in the way that they ought to be and, and it's, it's sort of very pleasing that, that they are because I think when you have a companion like Aramem it's very easy to fall back on kind of the the sort of cliched tropes. So I think, especially that she's a pharaoh, it would be so easy to write her as uh, somebody who's in this court and then kind of falls into the same routine as somebody like King Louis. You know, she could be demanding. She could insist that her place is, you know, at the top table and 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 be kind of. And it would be very. It would be great shame if she was written that way. Apart from anything, it would be uh, quite damaging to the character. Um, but I really appreciate the fact that that's not. They don't go down the kind of obvious. This is how a royal would behave kind of line. You know, she's sympathetic and she understands the politics of the situation and she's able to get a good grasp on, on what's going on around her. And that is so important for the character. We really start to get that sense of definition. And I mean, I, I suppose there must have been some guidance from, from the sort of editorial side. But but I do think uh, very much that Kevin Scott and Mark Wright understand the character and understand how to, to write it for Caroline Morris. And, and, and given that there are more than a few bad RMM stories, I'm so grateful that she gets this opportunity to, to have that moment in the spotlight sort of early on in her run. She gets to be a uh, Parma language badass, too. She gets to lead that whole army in the end. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun for her. Yeah, that's, it's great that we get to see those little battle skills in play. Part of the reason why the next Aramum story is my all-time least favorite big finish story, Necromancia, is so bad, is the fact that Aramum does play the victim in that story pretty much the whole way through and has so many terrible things done to her, which is so out of character and wrong. Cause, and so many other of her stories, she takes the lead so clearly and it's such a strong and dynamic uh personality and even when she's not the focus of the story she sort of sucks the oxygen in the room around here a lot because she's so like just dynamic interesting as a character and a lot of writers have fun sort of making a meal out of her 
So yeah, she is, even when the stories aren't good, she's always fun to listen to. And I think I will make us drop in, at least on either Axis of Insanity and or the Council of Nicaea, so we have some Aramem story, even if it's not a great one, because <laughs> the Kingmaker is a long ways away, so some other Aramem story to talk about, because I do like the character a lot, even when she's not given the best roles. Yeah, the problem with Aramem is, is never the character, it's, it's mostly just the stories that, that she appears in. And, um, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine that there's anybody who really has any great interest in hearing us cover uh, Necronica because it's just, I mean, it's such it's such a bad play. Um, but, but apart from anything else, it's not even bad in an interesting way. It's just really kind of ugly and, and unpleasant. And, and it's, it's, it's not even really worth, you know, sort of analyzing to see kind of what went wrong. So, um, yeah, that's but none of that is in any way either the fault of the character or the fault of Caroline Morris, both of who are absolutely terrific. It's just a shame that, that she didn't get a few more uh, stronger stories to cover in her run, but at least we know that there's going to be a few. Eric Sauer would look at Necromantia and go, whoa, settle down, that's way too brutal. <laughs> wow. I can't the- get an episode <laughs> to talk about it, I need to put my licks in somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, I'd say that closes the book on our discussion on the Church and Crowned as well. If you have anything you want to email us about, you can email us at TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. And from our previous discussion, here's a prompt. Uh, give us Aramem stories you want us to cover. If you do feel strongly about the Axis of Insanity or the Council of Nicaea or the Roof of the World even, which is a weird story, but uh, we covered the Rapture, so <laughs> we don't want to do too much of that, but, you know, weird but interesting is on the table. Uh, give us a shout, and we'll see what we can do. And then you can find me personally on Twitter, at Kevyko, that is K-E-V-V-Y-K-O. Please, like, rate, review, and subscribe to us. Do whatever you can to interact with our podcast on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps other people find it. And, yeah, we really appreciate the feedback. Fantastic. Well, next week, we are going to be covering Jubilee. So we are going to be going from the ridiculous to the sublime. That means we're going to be covering the classic Robert Shearman story. And we're very much looking forward to returning to the world of the Sixth Doctor and Evelyn. We hope that you're going to join us for that. But until then, keep talking. (laughs) 